Hi, my name is Morris, and welcome to How Did You Go Data Lake? This week we have yet another special guest, and it is. Hi, I'm Doug. <laughs> Hi, Doug. Wait, you didn't say unpause podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, unpause podcast. All right. Hi, my name is Morris, and welcome to Harajuku Data Lake. Today we have another special guest. This spe- today's special guest is Doug. Hi, nice to meet you, Morris. Thank you for bringing me onto this podcast. I don't know why I might be so formal, but All let's right. do it. I'm excited. All right. So uh, I guess what I want to start out with is like a little. I mean, we could we could go deep on who is Doug, but what is like the basic outline of who is Doug? Just basically a tall Asian American working in Tokyo. Uh, currently a front-end engineer lead, and um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> All right, so like, uh, you know, uh, I know Doug as, in addition to a tall Asian American <laughs> in Tokyo, a, uh, a a extremely experienced front-end developer. So uh, for my team, for example, uh, Doug is a person that we refer to when we have uh, when we need like expert advice on. The document object model on JavaScript, on server-side JavaScript, on all sorts of web things. That's very nice. That's very flattering. Um, and then just when you think he's only doing JavaScript, it turns out that he's also a Ruby on Rails expert. So, Cool, man. I appreciate that introduction. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's the least I could say. Yeah. So, uh, And h- how long have you been in Tokyo? <clears throat> I've been in Tokyo for like three years now, a little more than three years. I first came when I was... In- in January 2014, I think, and mm-hmm. I was like 24-ish at the time. I'm turning 25. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just finished a I just finished a startup company. I mean, I was working at a startup company, and like, unfortunately, we ran out of money. And mm. man, those were rough times at the end. But I mean, <laughs> this this was actually you were you, so you're originally from San Francisco. Yes, born and raised in San Francisco, and I actually went down to San Jose uh, to attend San Jose State. And that was quite, I mean, I did that in hopes of like finding a job, right? Mm-hmm. I thought it was like, oh yeah, Silicon Valley, I'm going to go down there. But it turns out Silicon Valley is like the whole area or at least most of San Francisco and everything south of that. Mm-hmm. So if you think about like geographically, San Francisco is more software and as you go further south, there's going to be more hardware. Hmm. So I ended up finding like an internship uh, back in San Francisco. So I was like commuting between school and San Francisco. I mean, sorry, school in San Jose and mm-hmm. San Francisco for like the internship. And over mm-hmm. time, um, that paid off a lot. I, actually, it was a lot of work and I really hated the com- the morning commutes. Um, mm. But over time, I got more into it, uh, the, the internship that is. And then after I graduated, I stayed there working there for about like, I, don't, I forgot how many more months. I think mm-hmm. it, was like, it was definitely less than a year. And then we ran out of money. And like that's where I learned most of my JavaScript and Ruby on Rails, and then oh. um, came out to Tokyo because I just wanted to live abroad a bit, and I thought that was a good time. So, uh, just go back to like San Francisco. So you grew up in the Bay Area. What does like you know? I grew up in Indiana, and so for me, Silicon Valley was like this place. It's like super far away, and it's like oh well, you know, you could you could go to Silicon Valley, but it's a thing you do. But for you, Silicon Valley was like your backyard. Like, how do you think about Silicon Valley growing up in San Francisco? Right. I mean, I don't have like the typical story like you would. But I mean, you hear about like Steve Jobs and 
all these other entrepreneurs like kind of growing up around San Jose, like more south of San Francisco. And right, it's like more right. hardware like, right? I guess like growing up in San Francisco, I mean, it's, it's just so normal to get into tech for me. And like uh, I had friends that were into tech, but it wasn't like when I was still young, it wasn't fully flourished yet, right? In San mm-hmm. Francisco. And it's only like around like college to the uh, to the end of and after my college years, it's like it really bo- boomed, right? You see mm-hmm. like uh, all these big companies moving in and you really start to see the effects of gentrification. And like, so growing up there, you kind of see like how the communities are like and how people are like. And you see the cultural, the, the culture that's built on like every street and there's like mm-hmm. these tiny minority communities. And like over time, you just see like tech kind of in some ways destroy it. I mean, like even now when I go back mm. once every year or so or a few months, I see like very big differences. Like, I mean, mm. one time I was, my friend was driving me to um, downtown and I was like completely surprised by how this big ass building just erected there and i was i didn't even know that they <laughs> built something there and I, I was i was just completely surprised by how different it was and i mean some parts are pretty cool now like around the twitter area it's mm-hmm. kind of it's much better now like it wasn't always the case there mm-hmm. but it's wait what what is the twitter area of san francisco uh it's like near van Essen market mm-hmm. so so before there's just kind of like if you walk from like westfield downtown to like Madison Market, that area is not that good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then now that they put, they had like tax cuts to bring the companies into that, those areas. <laughs> I, I love the idea that that San Francisco needs tax cuts to bring in like tech companies, but right. I, I don't I mean, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. But anyway, I mean, so for those buildings, I think or that uh-huh. area, I don't know what it is. And then um, and basically they moved in over there, and you see like I think Dolby Sound was there, and like Twitter mm-hmm. was there, and basically. Yeah, I mean, naturally, you just see these tech entrepreneurs coming in and people are going to start business around there and, like, mm. you know, people are going to want rent and, yeah, so on. Yeah, so the entire neighborhood kind of changes yeah. with, like, tech moving in. Exactly. That's really interesting. Like, because um, it, it sounds like just, it, it's just like any, you know, it, it happens to be about Silicon Valley, like, it happens to be, like, San Francisco and it happens to be, like, a big tech thing, but it's the same story that happens whenever, like, a big new industry comes and there's like boom times in the town. Right, right. And I mean, in some ways, I kind of think that might happen to Tokyo too. I mean, mm. like I definitely, in the last year, I definitely seen a lot more talented engineers coming in. Mm. And also just the fact that, yeah, I mean, just seeing more talented engineers coming and I, I can totally see a scenario where um, tech's going to blow up in Tokyo or something and then you see them moving into areas and kind of like raising the prices of everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you see the pr- prices around here. It's kind of like you can still get things for under a thousand, right? If you look, like, yeah, like less than a thousand yen, right? Which yeah, is like ten USD. Uh, wait, when when you say things, you mean like like I'm talking about? Oh, sorry, I meant like lunch and whatnot, right? Like food right, right. and uh, so if if you, I can imagine a scenario where like more tech companies moved around here and like that could really raise the prices up, right? Yeah, no, I definitely see that. And, you know, I mean, we, we're not here to give investment advice and we are not your investment advisor, but right. like, you know, a lot of room, you know, I, I hear a lot of people talking about like uh, rents rising in Tokyo and um, kind of like one thing I hear a lot is that, oh, they're going to go up until the Olympics. And then they're like, everybody's wondering, are they going to crash? Are they going to keep going up? What's going to happen? But there's definitely a lot of like new construction and a lot of it is around the Olympics, but I don't know, just in general, I feel like Japan's kind of this undiscovered thing. Like a lot of people, like a lot of tech companies come to Japan way, way late. 
Like they go to all these other markets in like Europe and whatever before they come to Japan. And it's like, guys, 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 like Japan is a free market. It's one of the few like super easy to go to markets. And it's, it's not like going to China where there's huge amount of regulation and you may or may not succeed on, in China depending on like the regulatory situation for your particular industry. But Japan's like pretty free market and it's huge. Like right. it's still like the number three economy in the entire world. Well, I mean, I guess like the biggest barrier is that, I mean, Japan or even Asian cultures in general is,、mm-hmm. uh, it's a very different culture. And I think、mm. doing business in a different culture is generally pretty hard. I mean, if you look at how, I mean, if you go to like a, a typical Mizuho bank or like SBC, like business、mm. there is very different from Ameri-、uh, American company, right?、Mm. And I think it's only in the more recent years where you see like places, like, especially Tokyo, you see a lot more startups coming up and like people adopting more of the, I guess, I, w- I want to say like Silicon Valley. Uh, mindset or like a, the way of doing things in businesses. Right, right. And that's definitely becoming more well accepted. So, you, I mean, like you know yourself, like a lot of、mm. companies here, they try to import culture as、yes. opposed to like you know, kind of organically growing it. And、um, that's, I mean, that's just has been appeal. Even like Pivotal coming in, I mean, one of their、mm. biggest sell is like, hey, we're going to show you how to do engineering like Silicon Valley. And I mean,、mm. it really is just standard, it's not nothing special. I mean, sorry, maybe we should cut that one out. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Like, like uh, uh, so <laughs> so j- just to do a quick back, I mean, Pivotal is, one of, is an extremely highly respected company out of Silicon Valley.、Yeah. And the reason that they're extremely highly respected is that they have a really, really strong culture and like really strong ways of doing things. So、uh, just their business is essentially they have two things、uh, half of it is consulting. So, they、uh, will advise your companies on how to do awesome things with whatever technology platform you're doing. And the other half is that they actually build and sell some really amazing project management tools. So, when people say, oh, we're using Pivotal in a development environment, they, they mean they're using like the Pivotal tracker like,、right. for project management. That's correct. Are you sponsored by Pivotal? <laughs> oh my God. No, no, no. I actually think、uh, it's, it's, I, have, I have mixed feelings about Pivotal. I did、right. see a presentation at,、uh, I think, the Tri Swift conference earlier this year by one of the Pivotal engineers. And I came back with like, the impression that, it, th- th- that the work environment was way too strict for me,、mm-hmm. in that it was like, very, very, like, you know, we all get to work at the same time. We all leave work at the same time. We all have lunch at the same time. We all do everything together all at the same time. And, and that's actually literally part of their, their thing is that. They literally、uh, do pair programming all like, and when I say all the time, I don't mean like, oh yeah, we do it like a lot. <laughs> I mean, like, no, they do it all the time. Like, like, like their workstations are two people, one machine. Oh, to be well, okay, clear, okay. one machine, two monitors, two separate set of keyboards, but still one、yes. machine, more or less. Yeah, so you're not going to be like pair programming and like looking at Facebook on the side. Exactly. See, that's the thing I think it's weird. Like, I do think people need to disconnect a little bit and like kind of look at whatever messages they are or respond to, even if it's like your wife, whatever, right? But when you're working like side by side, someone the whole day, it's like you really can't do those things unless you look at it together, right? Yeah. Well, I think、uh, like Pivotal, what's really amazing and what they've done really well is that they're able to take. Engineers at a wide variety of skill levels、mm-hmm. and produce a really consistent product because that's always the hardest thing is that you know, you talk about this con- people talk about this concept of having like 10x engineers. And what they mean there is that you know, they've got one really skilled engineer and they, they, they've, got, they've got a diversity of different like talent levels within a company. And I think what Pivotal is able to do is they're able to take those diversity in backgrounds and diversity in talent levels and use it really effectively so that they're skilling up the less skilled people and they're making the slower people. 
people faster. And they're also like, they're able to turn that into a consistent product. Right, right, right. I mean, the whole processes, all the processes, I mean, are just revolved around the idea of consistency, right? Mm. I mean, the how their actual development works and how they plan mm-hmm. tickets and like how they, yeah, you know, just everything. Yeah, yeah. And I have, I have a lot of respect for that too because I it's too. like, it's... Uh, I love it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Pivotal's a really amazing company. Yeah. Uh, okay, so yeah, uh, I definitely think Japan's kind of an undiscovered market uh, in a way. Do you like, want to go more into that? I mean, I, there's actually actually a lot to talk about that. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Because you actually have a really good perspective. Like, I've never lived or worked in Silicon Valley. I've worked at other tech companies, but right. you know, I, I see it from the outside. And you know, early <laughs> just early in this conversation, I caught myself because I was doing that thing. Is that I was mixing up Silicon Valley and San Francisco because often, you know, from some for somebody who grew up in Indiana, when I say Silicon Valley, I kind of mean that whole thing. Yeah, the Bay yeah, yeah. Area plus Silicon Valley plus yeah. like everything that's not LA that's in California. Right, right, right. I get it. Well, I, let me just, I guess I should be clear that the startup company I worked at in San Francisco, it's not your typical s- startup company where, you know, mm. like if you think about Silicon Valley and it's the basic company, it's like you have this image of like ping pong tables and like a lot of these <laughs> glamorous offices and like people having fun and like whatnot. But mm-hmm. I'm talking about like I was actually doing a startup like, Mm. You had to do a lot of work and there's going to be nice rear grinding, really trying to make demos and mm. trying to make things happen, trying to discover a business model, right? Mm. And I mean, I was still young at the time, but I didn't I didn't realize how much time like everyone there put into me, invested into me until I guess now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the kind of environment I worked in. So they were actually struggling to figure out the business model. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So that's the thing. They were mostly engineers, and then of course we had a marketing person as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but like that's where I learned a lot of good engineering practices because mm. those guys were really good. They came out of like different places, like uh, Visa, and mm-hmm. um, they just practice agile really, really well. Mm. And the idea of TDD with like um, test-driven development. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So um, and things, I mean, more like how should I say it? Um, softer qualities in the company such as mm-hmm. like transparency or like team morale and mm-hmm. like just being able to see things about a startup that you wouldn't normally see mm-hmm. I, I mean every wednesday we would have like a company meeting and the company meeting would be about what's happening in the company like uh business initiatives or growth and whatnot and like that really gives you like insight on what's happening and it makes you kind of incentivizes you as employee mm-hmm. and um things like retrospectives those are really important for like process like when you make mistakes you need process management right Mm. so it's only being in that environment when like i came into another environment uh, a company environment that i realized that those things are really important right so um i guess i have a better appreciation for it but yeah Uh, that's really i mean what i find interesting about that story is that i mean you graduated college with a computer science degree and i think one of the criticisms of uh education and uh current college education is often that it uh doesn't fully prepare people for the workforce but uh and my, my particular perspective on that is that i think it's really really important to build strong academic foundations because those strong academic foundations from a computer science degree in like 1985 are still going to serve you well 20 years later but at the same time there's this thing where there's the actual process of doing work in a software company which is it seems like something that we're still teaching kind of on the job right so where where you start really affects how you think about what is the right way to manage projects and how do you how do you actually work on a 
on a big application, on a big code base. Right. I just want to kind of touch on that part about the computer science degree, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like when I think about it, all of the, all of, a lot of skills I learned and gained from my professional experience, I mean, that's not something that school prepared me for, right? Right. And that's expected, like you said. Um, but the one thing that the, um, having a computer science degree did help me with was, um, I guess, like you you learn in computer science, you learn a little bit about a lot, right? So mm-hmm. you learn like some algorithms, databases, or just da- data structures and many different things. And the idea is like you, when you do have these problems with software, you know where to look and yes. you, ju- you know just enough to be dangerous. And I think that's kind of <laughs> cool. Like, and like now that I'm in like a professional environment, I see that it's the same thing for a business as well. Like you do have to know a little bit about a lot, like whether it's some little bit by finance, accounting, or just a business or where the model is going. Like you kind of have to know enough to make a good decision, right? Mm. Well, well, enough to know that you don't know something. Yes, yes, or or like where to look, or and I guess in a business context, you you know who to ask. Yes, yes, yeah. Like the fundamental computer science things. It's like okay, you can get really, you can do your entire job without ever taking an algorithms course. But if you've taken that algorithms course and you're dealing with a problem that could be solved with some knowledge from that course, like you will know that you're facing that problem and you will know that you have to go back to the course materials or you have to go, or that this problem has been solved by smarter people in the like 1976. Right, right, right. I mean, yeah, I agree with you a lot in that regard. So there are many times in my, when I was younger, especially um, when you're writing code and you're like, okay, I have two loops now. Should I try to reduce this? Or like, even if you have, like, I mean, I'm talking about nested loops, right? Mm-hmm. And if you ever get to three, you're going to be like, no, that's definitely not the way to go. So you have to look for another <laughs> way to do it. Yeah, I remember, I think uh, one of the first computer, one of the random computer science classes I took in college, I remember we were doing, I think, I think it was like a game of life thing or something. And I'm pretty sure we were using like C++ and OpenGL at the time. And I remember I had this board that was like, I don't know, like 100 by 100 squares or something. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'll just like go through them, go through every square on the board and see if there's something there. And it was like it's like, it was it was a loop within a loop and it was taking forever i mean like i thought my code was broken but it was actually working it was just incredibly incredibly slow because i was going through like you know um 10,000 iterations for one frame of like game of life <laughs> <laughs> yeah so those are little things that you would definitely uh look out for more if you have taken a computer science class but of course people who haven't would also learn it over time and they will learn how to not do these things. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So, um, all right. So, actually, what, what I wanted to talk about today... <laughs> so, so, the official reason that we have Doug on, to, on the show is not just to talk about San Francisco and startups. Um, but I think that's actually a really cool topic. You don't want to talk about Tokyo and how, like, all these foreigner companies are coming in now? Like, Stripe, Pivotal. I mean, okay, the last yeah, few no, years, a lot of American there, companies came there. in, right? I, yeah, okay. So so new American companies, so American startups that have entered uh, Tokyo in like the past few years, like we're actually in the same building as Stripe right now. Um, Pivotal, we mentioned earlier. Are there other like uh, American companies that you think about? I know Uber uh, has uh, Uber Black, or sorry, not Uber Black. No, that's uh, correct. Uber, Uber came in and then they started Uber Eats as well. Yeah, and Airbnb is here. Uh, I, I say uh, Uber Uber X is not in, available in Japan. So the the car. No, I think it is right. I, but I know Uber Pool is not in Japan. <laughs> the Uber where normal people drive cars is not available in Japan. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, I you, guess that makes sense. People yeah. in Japan don't drive cars anyway. 
No, they do. <laughs> Not the way Americans do. I mean, when I was in San Francisco, people had like one minute uh, cars away in uh, wherever I was. Yeah, yeah. But here, I actually have to wait 10 minutes. Uh, it's better to, I just get a taxi. Wait, do you actually take Uber? And sh- I took it like four what? times and it was really not worth it. It was kind of too expensive and it took too long. I might as well just take a taxi locally. Yeah, but by the way, so uh, Uber is, so UberX is not in Japan. Um, but the, uh, and in, in the absence of UberX, actually the uh, Japan Taxi Association or whatever it's called has actually, in like the five years that Uber has not been here, has actually created a pretty good app. So if you want yep. a taxi in Japan, you can get the non-Uber taxi Um you want to give him a plug right now? Yeah, sure. Um, whatever. I'll uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. But <laughs> yeah, okay. But um, going back to the American companies, or just any companies in general, mm-hmm. or even American. Not I shouldn't say American, but Silicon Valley norms. Mm-hmm. For example, like now you see dev boot camps popping up in Tokyo. There are a lot of uh, code camps in Tokyo. Yeah, I mean, and it's for me, it's kind of surprising. At the same time, it kind of makes sense. But I don't. I'm not sure. I think most people in these dev camps are mostly foreigners. Because if it's a Japanese person, they're more likely to stay in a company. I mean, there are people who are more international minded, so they'll be like looking for these more English speaking uh, classes. Mm. But uh, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, uh, I think what you're touching on there is that there's definitely a startup scene in Tokyo that is surprisingly large, but is also a lot of foreigners. Yes. Uh, so there, you know, there's a lot of there are tons of meetups in in Tokyo, and there are tons of coding schools. Uh, but they're also like um, a lot of like, well, it, it basically depends on which language uh, these events are using. So if an event is primarily a English event, you'll have a lot more foreigners than if it's an event that uh, people are speaking primarily Japanese. Right, right, right. I mean, I guess it depends on where you look for the events too, because there's like Compass or Doorkeeper, mm-hmm. which is more, I mean, Compass is a Japanese one and Doorkeeper is a more English speaking one. Yeah. So uh, for the English speaking listeners of the podcast, if you're, or uh, for the people who are interested in learning a little more English, uh, Doorkeeper has a great list of events uh, that you can go to and participate in and present in. And actually... Uh, Shout out to Paul. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they're actually, they're really like, uh, a lot of these English speaking events are very welcoming to people for whom English is not their native uh, language. So, for example, you can definitely give a presentation, for example, at uh, some of the Ruby meetups, even if uh, your English is not that great. And it's often a really good way to uh, work on language ability. And the same uh, goes the opposite direction. Although I would caution, please, if your Japanese is not that great, please prep for your presentation. (laughs) (laughs) Because I have in the past seen some people who I think think that their Japanese is a lot better than their Japanese actually is. Like they've practiced their Japanese a lot in bars and Roppongi. And then they're trying to give like a presentation on some in-depth technology, in-depth topic. And they're just struggling and it's painful for everyone involved. So, so it's, 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 uh, you know, I, I don't want to discourage you there, but I do want to say, like, be realistic and get help from people who are willing to help you. I mean, let's just be honest here. I mean, it's it's, it's kind of embarrassing when you butcher another language and you think you're good at it. <laughs> okay, I, mean, I, I guess this is like a pet peeve of mine because, you know, I do have, uh, you know, I have JLPTN1 and my Japanese Show is off. pretty good. <laughs> well, my Japanese is pretty good, but it's here's really the good. thing. Like... 
I know there is so far for me to go. Like, you know, I've been here for 12 years. Um, I do have these certifications, but there is no way that I'm going to stand up and be like, oh yeah, I can totally be a simultaneous interpreter for whatever. It's like, I am quite good, but you got to be humble about your language ability. That's true, man. And, um, you know, after you get N1, there's like Mm -hmm. another level. I mean, of course, it's a business level thing, but then you still have to be able to read Japanese people. Like, there's a lot of context involved there. It's like it's like learning English and you can't really understand these American jokes because you just don't understand mm. Americanisms, I guess. <laughs> well, I mean, you're, you're getting into culture. Right, yeah. Exactly. Oh, is that what culture is? <laughs> culture is like language and history and identity and everything. Yeah. Uh, okay, so what... So, okay. So... Let's actually get back to your story because sure. we kind of stopped it when you were working. You'd graduated from university. You were working in San Jose at a startup. Uh, startup didn't go well. They ran out of money. It was pretty rough, but you learned a ton of stuff. And uh, how? But then you came to Tokyo. So who does that? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's it's a pretty uh, ambitious move on my part. I just pretty much bought a plane ticket. I had one friend here at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I came out here. I didn't even have a job yet. I did try to find a job, but it didn't work out well, especially since I wasn't here. So I networked like crazy. And um, I don't really want to say this because I don't want people to like crowd that meetup. But I went to Hacker News meetup in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And that's where I made a lot of uh, my connections. Mm-hmm. And over time, you you actually see very similar faces among these meetups. Mm. Okay, but but actually, I want I want to go back to that. Uh, point where you first came to Tokyo. So you were working at a uh, startup for a little while after you'd graduated from college, and that was maybe six months or something. Yeah, it was like six months full time, I think. Mm-hmm. But before that, I was working there for like a year part time because I was going to school and that doing that at the same time for internship. Yeah, and so then then you came to Japan, and what I'm really interested in is how you happened to decide to come to Japan because I see a lot of people that come. You know, there there are a lot of typical stories of people who've wanted to go to Japan their entire lives and they, they they build their life around going to Japan or they have a very specific image of Japan because they're very into, for example, anime or they're very into one particular Japanese subculture. So it's it's like a lifelong dream to come to Japan. And it seems like yeah, you came to Japan, uh, but you weren't any of those things. You were like, uh, I want to go to Japan. Yeah, okay. So um, my ex girlfriend from college she's uh-huh. actually japanese and uh, we came to japan once during the summer and that was my first time seeing japan mm-hmm. and uh, before that i always had like a te- technology interest in it and i mean you ha- you kind of in the 90s you kind of grew up with this idea that te- uh, japan's really high tech and whatnot yeah i definitely had that impression when yeah. i was in the ni- when exactly. it was the 90s yeah, yeah, yeah i mean when back then having a sony tv was like really big right like uh, it was kind of (laughs) prestigious in many ways okay so going back to the story um so i came to japan with her and actually that was my first experience into it and i really enjoyed many aspects of the culture and like Mm. how it was like really well put together like the the country that mm. just everything about it like the ux of it like you, know, you ever go up to like an elevator or something and then like you walk out and the sign is placed in just in the right spot where you'll see it and yes. they'll tell you the right direction to go right yes or like just people like there's always an extra person whose job is kind of unnecessary but that person is there to tell you where to go or what to do mm-hmm. and those things are really great about japan and so i really enjoyed it i really enjoyed living here for that like one summer 
And I always thought I'm gonna wanted to live here for like a bit, see how long. And after the startup, I thought like, yeah, I should do it. And uh, it, I actually, a lot of people told me not to do it. Was but I also had a lot of people supported me. But at the end of the day, I was just like, "Fuck it, I'm gonna do it." <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what when when people told you not to do it, what were they worried about? Like, what were they concerned about? Well, okay, so my mentor at the time, he definitely advised me to stay in California, right? Right. And kind of like build up some of my wealth first and then work at a Silicon Valley company a bit or like just any big company, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, he's right in many regards. I mean, in many ways, uh, because for an engineer, your career is in California, is is in San Francisco, right? Right. I mean, you know, San Francisco Bay Area, California is a yeah. great place to work for engineers. There's exactly. a huge amount of demand. Salaries are really high. Um, it's in many ways, it's the center of a lot of innovation. Right, right. So it really was a personal decision on my part. I mean, I didn't really come here for career growth, but I definitely made sure that my career can grow. And I just mm. think like if there's a will, there's a way. Mm. Um, but there's also people who are like, yeah, you're going to come back, Doug. Like it's, it's, I guess I just couldn't imagine the idea of them putting themselves outside of the country and living abroad. And like, they, I guess they kind of projected that on me. Huh. I'm sure you had that too. I mean, I'm sure most people do when they're leaving, first leaving their hometown or whatever. Uh, yeah. Well, it's, mm. but for my parents, I mean, my parents get it. Like they mm. came, they immigrated to America. So they understand like the growth that comes with being abroad in a different culture and a different environment. Mm-hmm gives you a lot of humility you learn a lot of i mean being here i built up a lot of empathy towards my parents because i'm like really yeah 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 i I think about like wow this is when when i feel like a second class citizen here how i can't speak the language and i'm struggling to just like even order food or like going to a grocery store or just Mm -hmm. doing basic things even reading the mail i'm like damn i understand the immigrant struggles wow so you're you're actually second generation uh maybe is, okay. is first generation the one after or the one that came? <laughs> uh, okay, so anyway, but your parents were the first generation that came to the U.S. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I guess in that if that's the case, then I, I am second generation. Okay, well, I'm I'm not, I'm not really sure. sure either. But <laughs> huh? That's really, I mean, so I guess in my case, like my mom first came to Japan in the 1960s when she was in college. She was uh, she went to this tiny college, liberal arts school called Friends World College, where at the time you would spend like one year in a bunch of different countries. So she spent like one year in Mexico and one year in India and I think one year in Japan. Um, and so when I was growing up, she was doing research in Japan and uh, my family, I lived here for a little bit when I was a kid. And so for my family, like uh, Japan is not such a far away place. So they weren't so like, uh, it, it wasn't like you're going out. It, it was like going to New York maybe. Like it's different, but it's not super, super far away. Right. But uh, I'm really, I, I, why, why I'm so interested in this story is it's a, in your story of moving to Tokyo, is it's, a, it's something when a person does something that people don't expect them to do. Right. Um, it's, it's never interesting when people do exactly what you expect them to do. Like they get a big job, the job at the company, they build up their wealth. And, and it's also this thing where like everybody always tells you to build up your wealth. Yeah. <laughs> like everybody always tells you to like, pick the pick the safe option pick pick the right option that's boring pick the right company pick the whatever yeah yeah that's too boring for me i mean at the end of the day like i'm kind of really happy with my growth overall as a person and mm-hmm. i think like if you grow better in different i mean in different ways it kind of helps you in your career as well right because you learn to work with different people and how to handle them so in many ways i think like coming here was the best for me because it mm. helped me grow my career in many ways that i 
am really happy with it. I mean, the just results are pretty good. It's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I I want everybody to study abroad. Like, I think everybody should like live abroad. Yeah, I think abroad. so too. I agree entirely with you. Like, I always tell all my friends, you should go abroad. You would. I mean. You myself, you yourself also know this. Every expat that has been abroad and gone back home, they're like, wow, everything's still the same here. And they all have the same feelings about like, like just growing up and they want other people to experience that, you know, mm-hmm. that different growth and change and just your th- how your personal opinions grow and I guess all these things. Oh, yeah. I mean, my, my perspective is like you, you can't even you can't really appreciate America until you've seen something different until you yeah, like, exactly like exactly like, you know, I once said, uh, you know, every you have to go through like immigration customs every time you go back. And like, uh, you know, once what the, like the immigration guy was like, oh, you've been living in Japan a while. America not good enough for you. Hey, that's and, what someone said to me, too. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's so crazy because it's like, guy, like, don't you realize that you can't understand how you can't understand all the great things about America until you've lived abroad. Right. You, you understand your own culture better once you've lived outside of it for a little while. Exactly. And th- that goes for the same with language, right? You don't really know your own language until you learned another one, right? Absolutely. And um, yeah, I mean, coming out here, things like healthcare, dude, mm-hmm. America's healthcare sucks. I mean, I got, a, <laughs> I got a MRI out here for just 5,000 yen, which is like $50. And yeah, less than fifty dollars. Yeah, I mean, dude, it's it, it kind of says like how fucked up America is infrastructurally. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's the I think as a result, that's kind of why startups boom because it's so broken that people can fix these neglected areas. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there's so much opportunity in America, and I think the other thing about the U.S. that's one of the things that's really special is that. Uh, companies, you know, I mean, right now, Uber is not like the poster child for a good, well-run company. Definitely but, not. <laughs> definitely not. But there is the thing that uh, America is a place that a company like Uber in that completely breaks all the rules can actually survive. Um, yeah. I'm not sure. If, okay, maybe that's a better, terrible example. I, mean, I'm, I have a feeling Uber is going to be the death of the whole, you know, unicorn startup and many startup stereotypes i think because mm. it just seems very un- unsustainable yeah i don't know man i actually not the more i think about it i think there's like a there probably will be a new group of startup people yeah i don't know where i'm going with this actually <laughs> <laughs> okay but but it definitely feel okay uh, i know look uh sorry to the listeners i know we are all all over the place on this but yeah. uh i you know sometimes you touch on these paths and like i really want to go down them and i really like you know i think you just i think doug you really hit on something that's important there which is that uber is like a turning point for silicon valley startups yes and we're not sure where it's turning to yes but it's definitely like it's clear that it is like on the far end of the spectrum in terms of like it's it's the embodiment of break things and what's it it's like uh move fast break things move fast break things like yeah. that's the embodiment of Uber. It's like forget about the rules, forget about the laws, forget about morality, forget about everything. The only thing is like go, 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 go. How quickly, how cheaply can you get this service to people? And it's how too ruthless? Big, and it's incredibly ruthless. And it's like it's the move fast and break things to one hundred and ten percent is all the way there. And given what it's turned into, like right now we're seeing like uh, you know the the chief executive like uh was forced to resign and they are under all kinds of different investigations and it's like 
what week does Uber not have a scandal? Like every single week, there's a brand new Uber scandal. Right. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's all kinds of crazy. So it definitely feels like Uber is some kind of turning point because mm-hmm. I think now when people invest in companies and people build companies, the question will be like, okay, you say you're going to move fast and break things, but how will you not be Uber? Yeah, right. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, you, you hit it on the spot. I can't, I can't really <laughs> okay, add more to sorry. it. I mean, that, that's that's pretty much it. It's, okay. Uh, so, so one like, oh, and so that's actually a Mark Zuckerberg quote. Yeah, yeah. So actually, the quote goes further. I can't remember what it was. I think it was like, because then as as it got bigger, it can't you can't just keep doing that, right? It's they said something mm-hmm. about like move fast uh, and break things, but don't break infrastructure or something like that. Uh-huh. It, it, it goes further because it says like. Uh, the idea is that you build an infrastructure in place to kind of allow these things to break, but then you can still recover it from it, right? So an example of this is like Facebook has a thousand, thousands of uh, iterations or variations, I should say, um, being tested and experimented with, right? But then the infrastructure mm-hmm. allows this type of like move fast, break things. And I think that doesn't apply to only tech. I think about it and I think it applies to like infrastructurally. I mean, the business culture, the um, mm. just everything every process in the business, right? I mean, you think about like the infrastructure of a business, it might be culture, right? Mm-hmm. And then you think about how Uber was, yeah, they didn't have a culture in place to kind of facilitate those things. And mm. naturally they broke and now it's kind of being reinvented. So so, so their idea was move fast and break things, but they didn't stop with, uh, they didn't not break infrastructure. In the process, they actually broke the infrastructure of their own company. Right, right. Uh, you're talking about Uber, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, where, whereas Facebook's like move fast, break things is like try a bunch of different things, but you know, ha- have a thousand variations on the app that are all doing A-B tests with like different shapes of like buttons and icons and positions of things, but don't break the testing framework itself. Right, yeah. I mean, it comes down to, I, I firmly believe that a business should ha- build in processes and this will include tech as well to kind of help you a lot to empower mistakes right and not just like when things break it shouldn't like completely break the business mm-hmm. it should uh, help it, you have like things to help you recover from it and kind of work through it and facilitate that well mm. okay uh so i do want to we, we've talked for a lot of a, a long time so i do want to like uh kind of wrap things up sure so uh okay this has kind of been introduction to doug and it's like we've talked about startups in Tokyo. We've talked about your experience. Do you have any advice for people who are thinking about coming to Japan and working at startups? Yeah, I mean, if you guys want to come out to Tokyo and work, just make sure you come out with an open mind. Um, don't have expectations of like what you would have in a Silicon Valley startup. And that mm-hmm. goes for like salary and how people do things and um, possibly even a tech. I mean, yeah. Mm. Coming out to work in Tokyo really requires you to open your eyes and see things differently. And uh, yeah, just be open-minded to it, mm. to new things, that is. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I think I think there's a huge amount of opportunity here. Uh, my other kind of perspective on startups in Tokyo is that there's the older generation of startups were like kind of, or uh, in Japan, they're called like, I uh, Benchakigyo. What is that? It's like uh, venture-backed uh, organizations. Uh-huh. Uh, so fun, so... Uh, the incubator? No, no. It just means that like your company has uh, venture capital backing. Okay, okay. And I think in a way that's actually almost more descriptive than the term startup because like the term startup, like everybody <laughs> uses to be like, yeah. hey, look, my my small my 
two person small business is a startup. But um, I think I think when people say startup, what they mean is like it has venture capital funding and it's trying to go big fast and deliver a service, not just to a small number of people, but to the entire world really really quickly. And in Japanese, it's like uh, venture backed startup, literally. Um, but the, like the older generation of those companies, one of the really big ones in the early 2000s was LiveDoor. And LiveDoor got really big really quickly and it ended up doing some really huge acquisitions. And the end result was that the uh, CEO of LiveDoor was arrested. And Wait, this is in Japan? This is in Japan. Dang. Uh, so I think you can still see them around Tokyo. They're like uh, on a bunch of uh, light poles. They're like uh, LiveDoor Wi-Fi hotspots from like must be more than a decade ago at this point. Mm-hmm. But like, uh, I think that sort of froze the Japanese startup market uh, for a few years because mm-hmm. everybody was like worried. Everybody was worried that there was going to be like, that they weren't, that, that startups in Japan weren't going to be allowed to get big enough to actually challenge incumbent companies. And I think what we've seen over the past three, four, five years is a real renaissance of small startups in Tokyo. And many of their their kind of ambitions in some ways are a little bit smaller. Like there's a great New York Times article from a few years ago about how small startups in Japan are trying to be really, really nice and really, really friendly and really, really uh, not shaking things up, like not Ubers. But you definitely see a lot of like uh, small startups going big. And you also see like there are business contests all over the place. If you're a university student and you want to be participate in a business contest, you can do like a new one every weekend. Um, you can start small companies. It's a, it's a really great place to be. All right. So any, uh, this, this episode, you know, these are the episodes in some ways that I like the most where we are all over the place and we talk about all kinds of different things. I love but it. Any like uh, final thoughts, like sum this entire episode up in one sentence or like, yeah, I don't know. Was, <laughs> um, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I, we were just shooting a shit and I really liked that. I would love to do it again. Um, but I mean, it wasn't really like on point with a specific topic and that might be good, might not mm-hmm. be good, but it was very natural. So I really enjoyed it. Cool. Yeah, no, I, th- I thought it was really natural and I thought we got some of your personalities. So I'm definitely going to leave this bit in. <laughs> Thanks. All <man>. right. <laughs> Bye, Doug. Peace.